0: Welcome to the Pandemic Pantry Podcast. Do you like cooking, reading about food, or even just eating? Then this podcast is for you. My co-host Charlotte and I work in the food industry. We'll be taking you behind the scenes, meeting the people who make it all happen, and showing you what's going on. Together, we'll bring you an inside view from the food industry with our unique perspectives from our work behind the scenes in food creation and production. Every week, along with our special guests, we'll cover different foodie topics, from baking to growing your own, home cooking, outdoor cooking and even booze. Our aim is to take a positive look at what the nation is cooking and eating right now. There's so much adaptation, galvanization, and collaboration across the entire food system at the moment, And we'll be talking to some very special guests about the changes in their world, professional and personal, about remodeling, rethinking and innovating with so much turned upside down and sharing some unique perspectives from field to fork. We'll also consider what food will look like in the future, in the home and outside. This podcast is sponsored by Moorish Hummus, a tasty treat for when eating in is the new going out. Moorish produces a range of delicious dips, including smoked hummus and now new velvet hummus. Moorish is available in Sainsbury's, Waitrose, Ocado and many other stores. Every week our lucky listeners will be in with a chance to win some delicious dips in our competition at the end of each show along with some other exciting gifts. I'm Jules Waddell, founder of Moorish Hummus, yes there is a link, and I'm here with my co-host Charlotte, award-winning cookery, writer, teacher and chef. For more on us check out lovemoorish.co.uk and charlottepike.co.uk. We'll also keep you updated on what shops are open when and for whom on our website website pandemic-pantry.co.uk so it's time to pull up a chair at the table sink into the sofa or relax into bed and get ready for the pandemic pantry podcast Hello and welcome to episode nine of the Pandemic Pantry Podcast. This week we'll be talking about outdoor cooking. We'll talk picnics, barbecues, and smoking. Yum. And we have an all-female lineup of guests to inform and entertain us this week, which is great. We're joined by Genevieve Taylor, who's written several books about cooking with fire, and we also hear from the Hangfire girls, Sam and Shauna. Finally, in case this is the first episode you've listened to, we do like to say up front that we know the audio quality of our content is not perfect and occasionally contains the odd glitch. This is due to the nature of the pandemic and the fact that we and our guests are recording from home with less than optimal audio acoustics and the occasional Wi-Fi wobble. Finally, we have loved receiving your questions again about cooking during COVID and there'll be more on that later. So, on to the show. Hi Charlotte, how are you?
1: Hello Jules, I'm well thank you. It's been a funny old week, it's sort of busy but in a very very different way isn't it at the moment. From a work perspective I've been quite busy although it's all very different to what I was doing before. I have some sort of roles on committees and things that have been keeping me busy and busy writing. I've been pitching a new cookbook and done a few pieces of journalism but obviously still hoping for more news on events soon because that really feels very very uncertain although I had quite a few inquiries for 2021 actually with people who are trying to plan quite far in in advance which is I suppose a good thing but at home broadly similar my partner went back to work for one day this week so I had a few hours at home on my own for the first time since the seventeenth of March, which was really, really strange actually, but I mean it 's just so different to how it was before and he actually came back from work saying it was really, really tricky because he works in a lab and he 's an engineer, and it was actually really quite difficult to get things done there, and nothing was open, so he couldn 't get any lunch and you know, when he first started working from home, he was complaining how difficult it was to get things done at home. And now it really feels like a you know reverse situation where you can get so much more done at home than actually in the workplace, which is really odd. But we've been busy We're refurbishing our house and busy doing that. And I've been really enjoying cooking over the last week. I've got a couple of new cookbooks that I really, really like. And That's been really fun to do some sort of really creative cooking and not not sort of related to work. So I'm just really trying to focus on all the things that I can do and enjoy the time that I've got at home. How are things with you this week, Jules? Thank you, I'm well. That's interesting what you say about
0: how you sort of both got used to working from home now and, and your partner used to struggle with focusing on being able to work at home and now it's gone the other way. I too feel like it's almost like there's been a tipping point. It feels like this has gone on for a long time now. I'm starting to really feel it, I have to say. And I think it's that tipping point that, for me, in my own head, that it feels like it's been long enough that I'm now more used to working in the new way with the children at home and my husband not working and all of us having a bit around each other. I feel like I'm more used to that now than the old ways, this is sort of becoming properly embedded as just the way of life. I guess there's no talk of my children going back to school, so mentally I feel like there's quite a long bit of this behind us and there's also a long stretch ahead of us, of us all just being at home together all the time. And uh, I have to say I have a little bit in the last few days just with the ongoing stuff, nothing big you know nothing tragic very aware that lots and lots of people are having a really awful time minor things like really really want a haircut really need to go to the dentist you know just things like that little bits and bobs and the length of time that i feel still stretches ahead although there is now something in the news today so i think you know we're recording three or four days ahead of when our listeners will hear this podcast. And there was something in the news this morning about the possibility of reducing the social distancing distance from two metres to one metre. And I think that would, it obviously comes with huge health risks and goes against the medical advisors and scientific advisors to the government, but is being done in other countries and therefore is being looked at, apparently by the government, and would have a huge impact on a number of things, obviously economically helpful to the restaurant and hospitality industry if we went from two metres to one metre. So it will be interesting to see what happens next with lockdown.
1: Yes. Yeah. And I suppose, you know, there's been big news with the schools this week because your children are older than primary school age. Is that they right? Are, and they are, but I know a lot of people so Difficult primary school
0: age children and you think you're going down one road and then they're told, no, it's, it's not that. Yeah, that's been really tricky. Yeah. so not easy, is it? Not easy, but let's focus on this week's episode of the Pandemic Pantry podcast, where we talk about cooking and eating outdoors. Much nicer topics to talk about. Um, Looking at my window, it's very grey. It's actually not that cold, but it is grey, and the forecast is not marvellous for the next wee while. But regardless, we will be cooking outdoors, and I'm sure you will too. Talking of picnics, first of all, Charlotte. So we'll look at picnics, we'll look at barbecues. But tell me about your picnics. What do you pack in a picnic? And have you been doing much of that lately?
1: Oh, Jules, I am a really big picnic fan. And I will organize picnics all year round. So in the summer, we'll take a picnic every day and the last few years we've spent quite a lot of time in summer down in dorset we're really fortunate to live pretty close to the coast and you know there's also there are so many wonderful places to go there so we will just head out for the day everything in the back of the car i am the kind of person i have a large car and i keep all sorts of stuff in the back of my car at all times so I am prepped for all sorts of occasions so I always have picnic stuff in the back of the car wherever I go at any time of the year so and I also have at home (laughs) I'm afraid this is not sort of your your average level of uh, of picnicking but I, I have different bags packed picnic bags packed for different times of the year and different things I'm going to need. So I have my summer, summer picnic bags and I have my winter picnic bags. So they all have plates in. I'm actually trying at the moment, I was given some wooden plates. So I'm trying those as opposed to plastic, which so far so good. Cutlery, proper cutlery. And I have things like, I have all sorts of uh, napkins. I put condiments in there, you know, salt, sea salt, pepper, olive oil, so I have those that always go out and I have drinks, picnic bags. So in the winter, for example, and fairly often in the summer, I always take out drinks with me. So hot drinks, take out flasks, take out proper coffee. I take out plastic filter cone or a cafetiere so I can make proper coffee because I'm afraid I'm a bit, I'm a, I'm a total coffee addict and I'm also a total coffee snob. So I would rather take my own, take some milk and just have a really nice really nice coffee of my own. So I have my hot drink bags ready to go. Really good thermos well, thermos type flask is really, really useful. And then my winter picnic bags, I do lots of picnics in the winter and I do, still do lots of cooking outdoors in the winter as well. So I do lot, quite a lot of outdoor shooting, picnics, and things on a gun bus in in winter and January. So I have my outdoor barbecue stuff, I have soup picnic bags with cups and flasks for soup. So I'm complete picnic devotee
0: <laughs> I hadn't realized you are quite such a picnicaholic. that that's really <laughs> really funny particularly the winter picnics. so we do barbecue outside in winter or we my husband does because he's a barbecue fiend but winter picnics that's not something that I have really thought of or done much of so it's really interesting to hear how you make that work you obviously do
1: love a picnic then Oh my gosh I totally recommend it because if you take some hot soup in a flask I sometimes make vegetable soups I don't make anything green though because with anything green even if you're cooking green veg if you put the lid on it goes yellow or brown really really quickly so sort of thinner soups like french onion soup or even a bull shop with a bit of sherry in is really nice and warming And then I often cook meat on the barbecue. One of my favorite things to cook on the barbecue is a fillet of beef or a fillet of venison, for example, because that is super quick and I like red meat rare. So really, you only need 20 minutes on the barbecue, the whole fillet or a piece of it, and then just wrap it in foil to rest and it's ready to go, which is really easy. And, you know, there's lots of lovely things you can cook on the barbecue in the winter as well. Things like pheasant, I have marinated it. My satay marinade's really nice, and so there's loads of nice things you can do. Oh, one of my favourites as well is quiches Hot quiche in trays, really nice. Wrap it in newspaper, delicious. You've tried my quiche recipe in lockdown, haven't you? (laughs) I'm making quiche
0: today, Charlotte. I've already been. I'm always up super early. I've been up and made the pastry, and now I just have to make the filling, and it will be quiche for lunch. I have to say, only my husband and I will eat it because the two fusspots don't like it. Is such a great thing. And now I've got the pastry working nicely. It's really easy, isn't it? And so
1: I do love it. it. Mm. Absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. And then in the summer I make loads of salads and things. I really like to take a salad, lots of crudités lots of different options. And I think one of the most important things is just trying to get ahead because in the summer we'll often go out day after day after day and it's quite wearing trying to pack a picnic and get you know, everything ready and out the door in the morning. I can't imagine what it's like if you're trying to get children out there as well. But having lots of options that are kind of ready to go in the fridge are really, really helpful. So I'll often buy things like pots of olives and that sort of thing that I can just grab, pop in the picnic bag and they're ready to go. So Jules, this is your kind of your area, isn't it? I mean, <laughs>
0: Yes, nibbly things from the fridge is definitely something I can talk uh, with a lot of experience about. Obviously, hummus is my bag, it's my business, it's my world, it's my life. I am a total hummus nerd, and there's a lot of that that goes on with our picnics. So, we do primarily picnic in summer. Three of us love a picnic. One of us, surprise, surprise, my youngest son, was a bit fussy about eating outside until this year, and it's because he didn't like the insects, particularly wasps. But this year he's turned into a Doctor Doolittle and decided he loves all animals, even wasps, and when he sees them, you know, struggling if they're they're drowning in a puddle or something, he will go over and rescue them, which I'm not sure is a wise idea because he's yet to experience a sting. But anyway, he's more comfortable being outside with wasps and bees and everything else. So finally all four of us can picnic. So I do have picnicking down to a fine art, having been on many. So we tend to picnic in National Trust. Places. There's quite a few near us. I live near Greenway, which is the Agatha Christie. It was her holiday home, and it's absolutely stunning. On the River Dart, we take a picnic and it's just a really nice day out. Doesn't cost a lot, but we have a lot of fun. And so I have a really nice picnic bag, just aesthetically nice. It's not fancy or got anything super snazzy about it. It just is a nice looking picnic bag that I load up with paper plates. And wooden cutlery, which I found quite recently, which is great. And I have a set list of things. So I always bring a bag for the dirty dishes and cutlery, a bag for the rubbish. And then we have ice blocks, of which I have plenty from my hummus company. And kitchen roll. These are all the things that are sort of the the standard picnic pack, because I know that's what we need and then some nice drinks. I make a lot of flatbreads and take those and then you can wrap up whatever nibbly bits you have in the flatbreads. And they take sort of, say, 10 minutes to mix the mixture and do a bit of kneading, leave them to rise for about an hour. And then they don't need to rise and prove over and over again. You can just cook them. And I take them wrapped up warm in tin foil. And then we take our hummus, our olives, maybe some ham or charcuterie, some cheese and things like that. I've learned not to take things that melt In the picnic bag, like butter and chocolate, that is not so good. But you know, I take all the things that we like. And one thing I did make a few years ago that was really successful and I continue to make is a large loaf of bread with the top taken off, the inside of the bread scooped out and put aside to use as breadcrumbs later. And then I load the inside of the loaf with, so it's like a container, the inside of the loaf is like a container. And I load it with cooked chicken in pesto with basil leaves and maybe some cheese, maybe some tomatoes. And then you pop the lid of the loaf back on, wrap it in tin foil, take it out to the picnic and slice it up. And it's really fun and really delicious. Amazing. So that is one of our favourites. Yeah, and we normally obviously have a pot of Moorish hummus in there. Of course, it would be rude not to. Hummus is also great for barbecue food. So personally, I love a loaded burger and I put a huge dollop. We have a chili harissa smoked hummus and I put that on top and it's just so tasty and so gorgeous and seems to work really well with the flavors in a lovely burger. Mm -hmm. We've also launched a tahini dressing this summer and that's only in Ocado and farm shops and delis. But that is selling really well. And I think people have got more into their Mediterranean cooking. So things like, you know, roasted pepper salad or halloumi salad or even just pita with falafel and a lovely tahini dressing, that's gorgeous. Or with a grilled chicken skewer back to the flatbreads. Grilled chicken skewer, tahini dressing, flatbreads and some lovely salad and it's just gorgeous. So yes, I do love a picnic and I love a barbecue. But it's not just meat that works well on a barbecue. As our first guest, Genevieve, will tell us, let's hear what she has to say about outdoor cooking.
1: Genevieve Taylor is an author, cook and teacher specialising in fire cooking. Genevieve is one of the UK's top fire cooks and is the author of 10 cookbooks. Her most recent was Chard, the best-selling book on how to barbecue and grill vegetables. She's also the author of the Ultimate Wood-Fired Oven Cookbook and How to Eat Outdoors. At the start of the year, Genevieve launched the Bristol Fire School, which teaches classes covering a wide range of fire cooking methods and equipment, including wood-fired ovens, fire pits and barbecues. Genevieve demonstrates cooking over fire at a wide range of food and music events in the UK and Ireland, and she combines all of this with her role as the chair of the Guild of Food Writers. Genevieve Taylor, welcome to the Pandemic Pantry podcast.
2: Hello, hi, thanks for having me.
1: We are thinking about cooking outdoors lots at the moment. And, you know, the weather's been quite good over the last few weeks, which is wonderful. I think there's so much more to fire cooking than a lot of people realise. And What are your favourite ways of cooking with fire at home and your top recommendations for people to give a go?
2: Well, I think you can't go wrong with a pretty standard kettle style barbecue with a lid. You can, you can do sort of 75% of cooking on those and then there's I mean there's other bits of kit that you can do more with but a a good kettle barbecue is a fantastic start for people who want to get cooking outside that's amazing and so kettle barbecues am I right in thinking you can get
1: the basic version for you know really sort of under 20 pounds and will
2: that do the job as well as something a bit more specialist if I had a bucket and an old oven grill, I could cook something on it. And so, you know, you can you can improvise and you can make grills with sort of bricks and kind of you know old oven grills or whatever. But um, in terms of buying a barbecue, you kind of a little bit get what you pay for. So those very cheap ones, sure, you can cook on them and they they work brilliantly but you do tend to get what you pay for and they won't necessarily last a long time so I I would always prefer to slightly encourage people to sort of spend up to their budget to get something that's going to last for years rather than have a sort of slightly throwaway mentality that you're just going to use it for one season as it were because I I think it's better I don't know it's just a better thing isn't it to get something that's going to last if you can but you essentially you can cook on anything that's amazing yeah
1: I totally agree and what are you particularly enjoying cooking with at home so obviously with the school you've got quite a range of equipment at your disposal what what do you particularly enjoy what what are your favorite ways of cooking in your garden
2: I mean I just like cooking outside generally and I'm very you know I've got a lot of kit because I work with lots of different people and obviously the fire school so I've got a wood-fired oven that I built myself which is fabulous and that does amazing kind of pizza and bread and baking and that stuff and then I've got a whole range of different styles of barbecues. I've got a fabulous one from Ox Grills that's like an Argentinian parilla style barbecue. So it's like an open,
3: oh, open wow. grill
2: and you can kind of raise up the grill surface up and down over the fire and kind of hang things off hooks. And, you know, it's wow. a wonderful sort of dramatic way of cooking. And then I've got a Kamado Joe, which is like a kind of Kamado style ceramic oven, which is fabulous, and those are really, really versatile you know you can you can bake bread and pizzas in them once you get used to how you control the the heats but they what they really excel at, I think is that. Beautiful kind of lone slow cooking, so brisket and pulled pork and stuff that you want to take out as you just sort of shove it in and leave it kind of all day.
1: Amazing. Oh my gosh, I'm feeling so hungry
2: <laughs> just thinking about this. I was just trying to picture your doing a
1: perea because that's not something I've actually seen. That you've been able to do at home before I'm not I'm familiar with that piece of equipment but I have been to Argentina and it's just one of the best things ever isn't it <laughs> all different cuts of me
2: it's just so sort of atmospheric I think and when I was starting up the Bristol Fire School I, I had a lot of interesting people who wanted to go on my mailing list and I emailed every single person and said what do you want to know, what do you want to know when I was designing the courses? And and it's open fire cooking that people seem to be most keen on. And I think it's because you're you're so sort of connected intimately with the fire and the flames and the wood and the smoke. And that seems to be what people love most, that kind of atmospheric way of cooking. Whereas with a barbecue with a lid, although it's a very wonderful and efficient way of cooking because you kind of keep the heat in with a lid you're sort of slightly disconnected from the from the fire itself and it seems to be the fire that excites people
0: I was saying my husband is obsessed with fire cooking and we live by the coast, we live in Devon and um, so we've been lucky enough since we've been allowed out, we've been lucky enough to spend a few days um, or a few outings at the beach and we see people cooking on open fires at the beach and it just is the loveliest thing. That sort of smell and you know freshly caught whatever people have been able to get their hands on and the wildness of it, there's something really that obviously ticks those primitive boxes
2: it's like analogue cooking, isn't it? And I think we're, we're so sort of digitised these days, almost more so during kind of lockdown, because we're all, you know, we're all doing this, this kind of, this sort of virtual kind of interactive stuff. And and it almost feels more digital. So for me, getting outside and taking my cooking outside, it's kind of, it's switching that off and it becomes an analogue process. And you, it's very absorbing and all consuming. And I think, that's what I love about it that you you have to kind of work with the fire you know it's not like making something and shoving it in the oven and setting a timer you have to to be there and it's very involving
0: it's the opposite of a microwave meal isn't it
2: (laughs) yeah (laughs) but what I hate to show people is it is it is the opposite but that once you've got those basic fire skills it's actually very easy and it's just about having that confidence to work with the fire and the kind of knowledge about fire and how, how it operates and, you know, essentially what fire is. And once you've mastered that and got that kind of foundation of, of skill about fire, it's just cooking, like cooking anywhere, you know, it's no, there's no magic to the actual cooking bit. It's all about the fire. And talking about sort of understanding fire and how fire
0: works and wild cooking with fire I guess there is always the safety element especially if you're going out in dry weather into woodland or you know the countryside. Absolutely. You know what's your thoughts on that obviously we don't want to be encouraging anyone to start wildfires.
2: No absolutely for sure it's all about sort of learning how to do fire responsibly isn't it and one of my one of my absolute Bugbears are those hideous little disposable barbecues. I loathe them with a passion. And we can talk about fuel as, as well, because that's, those barbecues are full of the worst kind of charcoal. You can't cook on them properly just because of the way they're set up. They're loaded with chemicals, and obviously it's a disposable item. And people who use them seem to think it's okay just to leave them where they've burnt them. So you find them scattered across the countryside. It drives me insane.
1: It's such a problem, actually, isn't it? Because I I find it really quite antisocial and it just encourages this sort of massive generation of waste as well it's not just you know that it is actually such a nice thing to be able to cook outdoors and in terms of now that we're allowed to get out a little bit more and we can have a bit more freedom Mm -hmm. what would you recommend people might consider for anyone wanting to cook a really simple meal outside but wanting to maybe take some equipment that they've already got and just to avoid that waste generation.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's lots of l- small travelling barbecues. I've got one that's made by um, a company called Turos, through a German company, and it's like a, a little kind of compact grill with a handle that you can kind of carry it. It's a little bit heavier than those disposable things, but it's going to last me years and years and years. And I can put good fuel in it, you know. So they're fantastic. You can also get brilliant kind of fire pits that collapse down with legs, so they raise the fire off the ground. So you Oh, nice. Up, so you're not barbecuing. So if you go camping, for example, a lot of campsites say you can't have a fire that's on the ground because it sort of burns the soil and stuff. So something with, with legs is really good. Where would you get one of those from then? Just look online. I mean, these days, lots of those things are online it's where everybody's sort of shopping isn't it but yeah if you mm. google google kind of portable fire pits nice stuff. and as you say
1: you can put your own fuel in and good fuel so let's talk about good fuel for a bit because we're not talking about what you can pick up from the petrol station forecourt are we
2: <laughs> no we're not and this is something that i'm really really passionate about actually because we've all got a responsibility to to light sort of good proper fires and the the charcoal that you buy in the supermarket or the garage it comes invariably it comes from tropical hardwood sources and I don't think anybody out there would want to think that they were burning tropical rainforests but I think that people just don't think about it because the knowledge isn't there about that charcoal so not only does it come from the tropics and without a doubt some of it will be harvested in a way that's not very legal. Some of it won't be, but a lot of it will be. And the kind of the traceability is very difficult. But also if you think about it, the tropics, you know, they're coming from South America or Africa, mostly these these charcoals that you get in the supermarket. Countries that are thousands and thousands of miles away, so you've got all of those travelling miles to contend with. You know, I've got great issue with the fact that the working conditions where they make it is probably not what we would like. People to be working in, you know, making charcoal is a very dirty, dusty thing. Lots of dust, you know, you need the correct equipment to keep yourself safe from inhaling all that dust. They have to put a lot of chemicals in it to stop it setting alight when it comes on big container ships, because it's a very flammable thing and it can self-combust charcoal, it can set itself alight. So they put fire-retardant chemicals in it. When it gets to this country, they have to put other chemicals in it so that we can light it. You know, it's full of kind of chemicals and various things. So that's the kind of negatives about charcoal. But actually making charcoal is a very, very ancient art. It evolved in the Bronze Age when humans realised that you couldn't smelt metal with wood because wood doesn't burn hot enough. Charcoal burns two to three times hotter than wood. So the Bronze Age and making charcoal evolved hand in hand. So it's ancient, you know, thousands of years ago did they start making charcoal. And actually, the process of making charcoal is, you know, you coppice woodlands out and you thin them out. And that is a really, really vital process for managing the health of our woodlands in this country. So by coppicing and managing woodlands, you're massively increasing the biodiversity of that that woodland. So it's very positive from a sort of biodiversity point of view. Also, people who make charcoal sustainably from British woodlands make a living from it. And if you make a living from a woodland, that woodland gets to stay. If you can't make a living from that woodland, invariably it's going to get sold off to build kind of houses or you know. So so th- there's a kind of saying that a woodland that pays is a woodland that stays. So actually, that's a very very positive thing. If people can earn a living from a woodland by making kind of sustainable wood products, charcoal, that woodland's going to stay there. And the the latest figures that I think are available from DEFRA were from 2015, so quite a few years ago now. And the woodlands in this country absorbed 20% of all of our pollution. They absorbed it into the trees. So can you imagine if we have more woodlands in this country, the capability we have for keeping our air clean is kind of massive. So so if you look at the kind of bigger picture of charcoal, making it sustainably from British woodlands has got so many positives. Totally. Yeah, it's a really, really positive thing. But also... I would like to encourage people who want to cook on fire to think about the fuel as their most important ingredient. You know, if you charcoal, good charcoal, is almost 95% carbon. Carbon is a completely neutral base element. You know, there's no chemicals in it. It's very neutral. It's very clean. It burns very cleanly. And burning something like that has got to be better for your the end product, your meal, than burning something that's full of chemicals, hasn't it? I mean it's just like if you think of charcoal as your first main ingredient. And I think people the, the kind of provenance of, of foods becomes so important these days, hasn't it? You know, it's so, so much, who, yes. a lot of us, thankfully, would think quite hard about where we sourced our ribeye steak from and we'd get it from a good butcher and we'd think about that. But then most people would then put that steak on really rubbish charcoal that's come from the tropics, it's got loads of chemicals, and that doesn't quite add up for me. So so that's kind of the reason that I'm quite passionate about charcoal. You know, it's, it's really, really important. It's really probably is. a bit ranty, but. No, it's <laughs> fascinating,
1: though, and I think. Actually, a lot of this is just not known. And I must confess, even up to a few years ago, I was buying charcoal that I thought was amazing quality. But it was being shipped over from the other side of the world. And frankly, it produced a great result. But I was absolutely horrified when I realize the full extent of what I was buying and actually it was bought for the best of intentions I thought it was really amazing but it was just totally out of character with everything else I was trying to procure in my house and my kitchen and my garden and I think actually there's just a, a real lack of awareness of just how damaging a lot of charcoal we just inadvertently pick up because it's on special offer outside the supermarket or what have you And in terms of people who are really thinking about potentially making some changes to what they buy, and really, Mm -hmm. I'm sure lots of people will listen to that and be quite horrified in terms of how bad a lot of charcoal is, where would you recommend people looking who wants to try and buy something that is sustainable, local to them?
2: Yeah, the first place to start would be on the internet. There are a lot of good charcoal makers out there. Google sustainable British charcoal, you will find people who are making charcoal locally to you, which is a good thing because then that, that helps the woodlands in your particular area. But also, I mean, there are companies that make it so brilliantly so some of my friends run whittle and flame charcoal which is on the cornbury estate in oxfordshire they are at the cutting edge of charcoal making in this country and it's the best charcoal i've ever burnt it's becoming quite hard to get hold of because it's it's so good that you know word of mouth is spreading and they kind of they can't make enough to keep up with demand but um the best charcoal is made in a closed retort system so when you the process of making charcoal is called pyrolysis and it's essentially cooking you cook the wood at a lowish temperature so you don't burn the wood you cook the wood and that burns off all the all the bits in the wood that aren't carbon so all the kind of lignin and cellulose and that process produces lots of off gases and those in bad charcoal making those off gases go straight up into the environment into the air into the atmosphere and contribute to kind of global warming but in a good system it's a closed retort system so all the gases are kind of recycled and they go round and they burn purely and that process actually generates a whittle and flame they're kind of generating electricity from that process because it's so efficient the kiln that they've designed is so, so super efficient so it's a super positive thing but yeah to I mean I would I would encourage people to google sustainable British charcoal and actually if anybody's got questions about charcoal they just you know find me on Instagram or whatever and I'm very happy to kind of point them in the direction. That's amazing and actually
1: I know that you pointed me in the direction of some charcoal suppliers not long ago, um, for which I'm very grateful. And what was really interesting is when I placed an order, mm. it is more expensive sure. than basic charcoal. But I did compare that with the price of what was being sold as a premium charcoal outside the mm. supermarket. Mm. And it was pretty comparable, to be honest. I mean, it's not, there is a premium, but it's not as much as you might consider it to be so it's a really
2: good option it is it's a really good option and it burns it burns hotter it burns cleaner it burns more efficiently so ultimately you you use less i mean you need to learn a little bit about how to work with it because it does burn very hot and that's where your kind of vents on your barbecue are kind of important to you so you control the airflow and reduce the airflow and then that slows the burning down so it goes back to the kind of learning about fire and how it works and how you, you be in control of the fire rather than the other way around.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about Chard. Now, it's such a beautiful book. It's so inspiring. That is full of so many fantastic ideas. And I think one of the things it does so well is it just shows the real range of ingredients that can be cooked over a barbecue and grill beyond meat and fish and all the things that we know what are your favorite things to cook over fire what's your well, favorite ingredients you,
2: you know you can cook anything over fire because the fire is just the heat source that's all there is to it so you're just you're just using the heat to cook so you can you can cook anything and the reason I wrote chard I'm not a vegetarian by any means but barbecuing struck me as being the last bastion of the carnivore and that there's no other meal you might go to that your friends invite you to where you might be expected to eat a chicken wing a burger a sausage a rib maybe a bit of steak you know it's just all this meat it's like a kind of really old-fashioned 1980s mixed grill isn't it I (laughs) I don't want to eat like that anymore and I don't think many people do But when it comes to barbecuing, people seem to have got stuck in that cycle that you've got to give everybody kind of six different kinds of meats in one meal and then maybe make a bit of coleslaw and a green salad in your kitchen. (laughs) Whereas actually for me, I wanted to treat it more like I would a Sunday roast, for example, where you have one beautiful joint, but you've also taken the time to consider the array of side dishes that you would Present to people so that the whole meal can come off your barbecue. So that was the kind of inspiration. And I didn't really write charts for vegetarians. I kind of wrote it for those big hairy beardy barbecue guys who think you can only cook meat on a barbecue. That that was my kind of audience. That that actually, guys, come on, let's just sort of modernise the barbecue a little bit. So you can cook anything on a barbecue. I've got an allotment, so I've I've got a lot of kind of gluts of vegetables. That, you know, when you've got gluts of stuff, you're happy to experiment, aren't you? So I just chucked everything on and just saw what happened. And pretty much every vegetable can be cooked on a barbecue. You might need to change the way you cook a little bit. So imagine kind of peas or something. You can't cook those on the grill. They're going to fall through. But you can get an old sieve or an old colander put the peas in it, set it over the fire, hit, hit it with some sort of smoke and flame, amazing. You know, you just need to sort of adapt a little bit about how you cook stuff. Root vegetables are amazing on the fire. Have you heard of the Maillard reaction for, that, that is very famous for kind of steak and meat? No, tell us, what's that? No, it's, a, it's, a, it's a chemical reaction called the Maillard reaction. That's what makes steak tastes amazing and, and it 's a chain reaction between the amino acids and the the proteins and the sugars that starts when you cook something over a really high heat it 's the caramelization basically, but that happens with vegetables as well because vegetables have got kind of you know all these different amino acids and sugars and stuff in them, so to a greater or lesser extent so root vegetables, lots of lovely natural sugars barbecue beautifully. Parsnips, carrots, swede, you know, all those things. Wonderful on the barbecue because you get those lovely kind of caramelized bits. And they seem to absorb smoke as well, which is brilliant. So mushrooms, amazing. You know, think of the surface area of a mushroom with all those lovely gills. Suck up smoke flavors like a sponge, you know, brilliant. Just going back to charcoal, actually, for two secs. Charcoal is very pure, pure carbon you don't get smoke from charcoal so if you're looking for smoke flavour you need to be adding a little bit of wood as well so I would often cook either just totally over wood if it was an open fire or in my kind of barbecues I would often add if I wanted a little bit of smoke flavour It don't always but if you do get little lumps of wood that you can buy again there's a company that I buy from quite often called the smokewood shack you can get lots of little cubes of different types of wood so cherry and alder and birch they sell bits of old whiskey barrels sort of oak whiskey barrels that are amazing because you get this wonderful kind of whiskey smoky loveliness that comes off so that's how you would add a bit of smoke to your food
0: yeah And those charred vegetables, they sound like, I I am also very hungry, Charlotte. They they sound like the kind of thing that would go well with cool, creamy sides. So like a labneh or a a sort of a cool, creamy dip or something.
2: One of my favourite recipes in charred, in fact, it was the one that started the whole book off, is a a barbecued carrot recipe. You blanch the carrots, because if you think about a carrot, it's a very dense vegetable, isn't it? So if you put a marinade on that, nothing would happen. You know, it would just sit on the surface. So if you blanch them, heat it up, you start to break down the cell walls of the carrot. Then you get a marinade on it when they're hot and drained and then just leave them for however long, a couple of hours, whatever. So so these carrots, I marinated them in chipotle chili and cumin and garlic and then just left them overnight in the fridge, then barbecue them. Get a beautiful kind of caramelization then you take them off the barbecue and that's where you add your layers of flavor and texture so spring onions herbs ricotta pecans you know it's all about building up the whole dish wow that's so amazing it's you, in your mouth that's you've amazing. Kind of got all of these different crunch and creamy and you know soft and that's the food that excites me is when you've got Kind of layers of
4: stuff going on. I can
0: see it in your face and I think it's exciting because it's not the obvious so I wouldn't have thought of a cooking carrots on a barbecue and b I wouldn't have known about the pre-cooking and getting it all right once you've got those little bits those gems of knowledge what amazing food you can make yeah
2: no really really I mean that yeah it's exciting I'm hungry too <laughs>
0: Hungry and do you barbecue all year round, Jen? My husband barbecues in the snow. Doesn't matter what time of year. I imagine you're the same.
2: Yeah, I am, and I would love. To, I would love to encourage people to not just think about barbecue season as being kind of between June and August. You know, because for me, I love fire cooking. I think because I I love being outside. So in my mind, it's a way of me kind of breaking the shackles of my kitchen and almost sticking two fingers up at domesticity. You know, it's like, I'm going to get outside and do make my cooking a little bit more adventurous because I don't want to be stuck in the kitchen feeding people three times a day. So, so that's my kind of motivation for fire cooking. So yeah, sure, I do it all year. And, and sometimes in the winter, that's just a question of chucking a joint on my Kamado Joe oven, sticking a thermometer probe in it, And then coming back inside and watch you know keeping an eye on it but i don't have to be there babysitting it so you get that kind of you get those wonderful kind of flavors You don't you don't need to sit outside with it in the rain and you don't necessarily need to eat outside you know you can barbecue food on a sort of cold night and then you come and eat it inside and you bring a little bit of that kind of outside in
1: yeah lovely. Now, lockdown, you mentioned you got an allotment, Jen. Jules and I have certainly spoken before about how we've been enjoying gardening, growing, having some space. It's just been a source of just creating some headspace and pleasure during such a difficult time. I mean, I imagine you're feeling quite similar with your allotment.
2: (laughs) I am. It's, It's been an absolute sanctuary for me. I mean, I loved it. I've loved it since I got it about three years ago, but it's just been kind of critical, I think, to my mental health over the last few months, just to have that place and to sort of get my hands, you know, in the soil and just feel a kind of connection.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that
2: connection with nature, I have found
1: really, really more vital than ever. Over yeah, the last
2: absolutely. I mean, kind of vital, I think. And I'm so very grateful that I've had that opportunity to, to have that space.
0: Yeah. Well, talking of lockdown and life in lockdown, Jen, the last thing we ask people is what three things you're looking forward to when we are no longer so locked down. So, you know, thinking about what you might be missing, can you tell us what will bring you joy once you're able to do some more things?
2: hugging people because you don't realize that how much you kind of enjoy sort of human touch you know sort of hugging your friends that that's going to be amazing not to sort of walk down the street and sort of automatically sidestep around people you know just to sort of be connected to people again is going to be amazing I'm not a massive restaurant fan, so it, you know, I haven't particularly missed going to restaurants because I'm cooking all the time for myself anyway, but I've, I've really missed throwing open my doors and inviting people to share food with me. I've missed that so much and sort of hanging around the fire with kind of all my bulky friends. And, you know, that, that's what I want to do, really, is just sort of hang out with people Sounds good. Sounds lovely. Well, listen,
0: we will let you go off and uh, stoke up the fires and (laughs) get your lunch on. Thank you so much for giving us your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. This is going to be such a lovely episode. Can't wait. Thank
2: you. Thanks. Thanks a million.
0: That was so interesting. It's been great to have Jen on the show.
1: Absolutely. I really enjoyed that. And it was particularly interesting to hear her talk about fuel and what we should be looking out for.
0: Yes, I learned a lot about that and I should be making sure my husband listens to this episode as well. And now we have another interview on the topic of outdoor cooking. We are going to hear from the fabulous Hang Fire Girls who've taken a break from filming their BBC series and appearing on Saturday Kitchen to join us and share their passion for barbecue.
1: Sam Evans and Shauna again are the ladies behind Hang Fire. In 2012, Sam and Shauna quit their London jobs to go on a seven-month road trip across the southern states of America to uncover the secrets of American barbecue. Sam and Shauna brought this southern-style barbecue cooking back to South Wales and started cooking and selling street food. The Hang Fire Smokehouse won the best street food category at the 2015 BBC Food and Farming Awards. They published their best-selling cookbook, The Hangfire Cookbook, in 2016. The next step after their pop-up success was to open their own restaurant, Hangfire Southern Kitchen, in the Pump House in Barry, serving their southern-style food cooked low and slow using the best quality Welsh ingredients, prepared and served with love and care by them and their team. The restaurant has been very much a part of the regeneration of Barry, and they won Best Restaurant Award at the Observer Food Monthly's 2018 Awards. As if that were not enough, their third BBC TV series is currently being broadcast. Sam and Shauna's Big Cookout is currently on BBC One Wales and available on iPlayer. Each episode is a gorgeous exploration of food, culture and community across Wales. Sam and Shauna, welcome to the Pandemic Pantry podcast.
4: Woo, 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 woo. woo. Yeah. Hello. That, <laughs> I love that. That, that, that <laughs> and, introduction is making me feel exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, now, I now know why I had to work seven days a week for seven years. <laughs> I
1: mean, just incredible what you've managed to achieve in such a short period of time, comparatively. And since lockdown, since March, it's been such a crazy months for all of us how have things been for you both
3: to be honest with you we hadn't realized how much you've done i mean you were just reading the intro to us i have to say we have enjoyed the break somewhat on the plus side Think, you know talking positively but of course just like many restaurateurs, i mean it was devastating news to well to the entire hospitality industry but we're okay within ourselves we remain positive we remain upbeat and hopeful absolutely absolutely and you know it has been
1: just such a relentless time hasn't it and it is a strange time having that chance to have a pause as such compared to sort of going out and having the usual routine but obviously you've been you've got a new tv series out you've been busy promoting that
4: it feels like I'm still working nine to five, to be honest with you. Yes. Um, there's been so much going on in the background. Um, yes, with promoting the TV show, but also, you know, when you run a restaurant, we furloughed 16 employees and everything wow. comes along with that. Grant applications and, and shooting videos. It's, it, honestly, it feels like I don't know how I did my previous life before the lockdown. <laughs> so, But it is nice to be working from home. The TV show has been fantastic. It's been really well-received the viewing figures are better than they ever have been, which is fantastic. Maybe that's because people are looking for something really joyous and positive to watch. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. I think think it's called
4: a captive audience. Yeah,
3: (laughs) Literally captive.
4: I know, I know. Uh, But the TV show allows us to shine a light on everything that we love about Wales. Beautiful people, beautiful produce, beautiful landscape. And it's a real tonic to watch at the minute. It's a beautiful reminder of how things were and how things will be again. Totally. Am I, am I picking up
0: that you are not Welsh? Are you from the same part of the woods as me? I'm from Belfast. I'm North
4: from Bangor. Oh, Northern Irish oh, yeah. girls. Well, the episode of the TV show that went out this week was from Bangor, but in North Wales.
0: Oh, the other Bangor.
4: Not Bangor Boats <laughs> Away.
2: <laughs> there we go. Who knew? That yeah, crazy. it's just... It's so gorgeous, the
1: programme, and I just love how you visit so many interesting people and really celebrate the sort of diversity within Wales, both in terms of culture, food, and locations. You know, the footage is gorgeous, amazing stories, and you really you really learn something.
4: Well, in, in as much as we teach them how to cook, they teach us about their community. And one of the things I love about the show the most is how we've been able to drive cultural diversity. Like if I told you that I was going to show you a cooking show from Wales, you wouldn't think that it was going to focus on the Gujarati women of of the Samaj in Cardiff or the Chinese community in North Wales in in Bangor. It's just, it's a wonderful celebration. And, you know, it's very poignant for, for these times to just show actually how diverse and welcoming Wales is to a whole variety of different communities and including me because I've been living in Wales on and off for 20 years and and the the Welsh people have always made me feel like it is my second home.
1: Yeah, that certainly comes across when watching it, absolutely. What have been your standout experiences from filming this TV series?
3: Well, we've shot probably 12 episodes, 12 episodes. Yeah, there's four episodes per series. This series is going out now, so there's four episodes just dropped on iPlayer. The rumour is that they're going to put all the series up on the final episode. So you'll be able to binge watch. It's all about a box set these days. You know what? There are so many highlights. And I think when we created this show, it wasn't supposed to be a chop and chat. You know, it wasn't supposed to be another run-of-the-mill show whereby, you know, it's lights, camera action, we go there and we leave. It was supposed to be a two-way experience for us in the community. So we would learn something, they would learn something, and by turn, you know, the the rest of the nation would learn a little bit more about what's going on in the communities in Wales.
4: We quite often the show's been described as like a cross between Challenge Annika and DIY SOS. (laughs) (laughs) And I hope that comes across. You know, like Sam and Sean's big cookout. We do this for real. We're not just presenters that get wheeled out in front of the camera to interview people. No, every episode is about nine months in the planning. And we go and spend a whole week and live with the community and do what they do for a whole week. So, I mean, some of the highlights for me has been about the cooking in particular. And I remember the very first episode, which centers on Barrytown United football team, where we bury a whole pig in the ground, in the beach, on Jackson's Bay and smoke it for 24 hours. There's no rehearsals for any of this, by the way. So we've got limited
3: time. The community has limited time. We're all busy people. So it's a lot of theory, <laughs> tends to be. and But the show works on everybody coming together. So for example, if it was just Shauna and I trying to pull off these crazy madcap ways of, of feeding hundreds of people at a time, we just couldn't do it on our own. And, you know, our crew is really small. I mean, there's, probably something like between six and eight of us you know so a catering t- truck doesn't pull up you know we're all chopping coriander we're all we you know we're all helping bury that pig we're all cutting those potatoes or smoking that fish we're doing it together and you know and i and i hope that that really comes across that people to people that it's a genuine thing that happens it's such a brilliant concept whose idea was it
0: how did it all come about how how are you now on bbc tv what's the story
4: behind that well i think after we won the bbc food and farming awards in 2015 with the highest number of votes in the 15 year history of that award ceremony
0: Yay! oh well, that's yeah, just
4: incredible well that kind of put us on the bbc's radar and and there was a lot of talk for a long time about us being the female hairy bikers <laughs> um, which, which to be honest with you I mean, I mean i'll take that i mean what a what a wonderful comparison that that would be because obviously those gents are hugely successful we're slightly more hairy than the boys right now during lockdown I have in lockdown say. it doesn't matter does it? <laughs> <laughs> but a bit like when we wrote the cookbook we didn't want to write a cookbook just for the sake of writing a book we wanted it to to mean something to inspire people so if, in the same way as if you look at the cookbook, every recipe is inspired by a person that we met on our road trip or, or someone that shared a recipe with us or taught us how to do something. We didn't want to make a TV show just for the sake of it. And, you know, the holy trinity of good times for Sam and i's, good music, good food, good people. So that's really where the show came from. And if you look at the type of food that we specialize in, American barbecue, soul food, cooking outdoors, That's the type of food that that brings communities together. So a lot of the communities that we celebrate in the show, whether it's the on-call fire service at Aberystwyth, Brecon Mountain Rescue, Beryside Lifeboats, these are all armies of volunteers, and often they don't get paid to do any of this work. So what better way to thank them for all of their hard work than through a big, big party?
1: It's just incredible. So we know that people are at home watching you on the tv and I should say we are recording a couple of days ahead but you have just been on Saturday Kitchen haven't you so that should be on iPlayer for anyone popping on there that must have been an interesting experience recording that with social
3: distancing Uh, 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 we're we're on tv as well almost as much as Nadia Hussein at the moment uh... (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's our third time on Saturday Kitchen. So, we did a show in January and then we helped out with one of the Saturday Kitchen dailies. And then we drove up to the studio again uh, last weekend to be on there. Live TV, I I mean, to be honest with you, Shauna and I are very good at being unscripted, if (laughs) if you know what I mean. I think if you had to tell us what to say, I think we would probably fumble. So, live TV for us isn't as intimidating as some might think. But, however, You know what? It is, I think, you know, it is a live show. Lots of things can go wrong. If you watched last Saturday's episode, we almost failed to follow a basic instruction of where to lay a plate. (laughs) But, you know, it is super fun and, you know, and we love it. And Matt Tebb is just such a great guy and the whole production team are amazing. And you hardly realize that there's a camera there. So, yeah. And it's
1: actually, the thing that's really incredible is it's actually a really tiny space, isn't it? You you just walk in and it is, I've certainly found it so different being in that sort of small studio. It definitely doesn't feel the way it looks on TV.
4: Oh, Charlotte, I missed you. I've missed your episode of Saturday Kitchen. You'll have to send me a link. <laughs> well, I've actually, I've been in there, but I haven't been a guest. So
1: I'm still waiting oh, for that call. Well, they, <laughs> they, they <laughs> but I went in there for offer. something else.
4: They need to get you on there. One of the most (laughs) challenging things about Saturday Kitchen is actually figuring out what dish you want to cook because you've got such a limited amount of time. You've got about eight minutes to pull a dish together, but also you don't want to be doing too much of the here's one I made earlier. Um, so you've got to strike a balance of of a dish that's actually achievable. And the other thing is we're not classically trained chefs and we're not trying to be. We, we're people that love food and, and everything that we try to cook on Saturday Kitchen, we want it to be achievable. And we're always overwhelmed by the number of people that watch the show Cook the dish, send us photographs of the dish, which looks better than our dish. I have to say it's the same with the cookbook as well. People look at the
3: cookbook, they cook the dish, and they always send in pictures better than what we made. So <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting, different it? Work. <laughs> Yeah, because I sort of slightly
1: feel as if you know the world is full of recipes that a lot of people are kind of never going to make, but Actually, people always want inspiration for recipes that they can make and are going to work well. And your book has been such a success in that regard. What are people really cooking from it at the moment at home?
3: Well, I think we're a perfect example of people that hoard cookbooks and often never cook from them. You know, so during lockdown, we have been really exploring those recipes that we've always wanted to make, but never really had time to do. And I think, you know, American barbecue, slow and low smoking is definitely something which has a bit of a cult following. And now people are really indulging themselves in those longer cooks. And you know, our book is full of inexpensive, relatively inexpensive recipes, but it does take time and it does take a lot of care and attention. And we've been doing exactly the same, you know. We've been trying to upskill ourselves on different types of wood, different types of temperatures, and different types of meats and vegetables. One on my bucket list was always to make Dishoom's Black dal. Oh, um, yes. Yeah, so we actually – you know what, my second day of lockdown – I made it. And yes, it was a labor of love, but goodness me, it was delicious. You know, so it's just, I think this time, you know, albeit it's not the most positive for a lot of people, you know, it does afford us a little bit of time just to hang out in our gardens and our kitchens a little bit more, you know, and reconnect with things that make us happy, which is is cooking. Absolutely. And it's been the same for
1: me because I've often been going around, you know, country, cooking at events, doing things, and actually not very much cooking in my own kitchen. So yeah. that's been a really nice element of being in lockdown
3: absolutely I mean you know our back garden was kind of atrocious really (laughs) you know we would do all our cooking in the restaurant and you know I think our barbecue at home probably has only been used about sort of 15 times you know so we would always cook in the restaurant so yeah there are two things which are complaining in our house one is the dishwasher the other one is our barbecue so (laughs) they, they just like us to stop There's one thing that I think is particularly striking about your
1: style of cooking and your recipes in the cookbook is that actually this whole style of Southern barbecue is actually about really extracting maximum flavor and value from quite simple and humble ingredients. Because a lot of the starting points, starting ingredients are actually the sort of cheaper cuts, ingredients that really need a lot of love and care afforded to them to be able to get the best out of them and that just feels so fitting for our times at the moment
4: and that's exactly where where soul food comes from you know dishes that you have to pour your heart and soul into to make them taste incredible and that really is the the food of the deep south of america not just an american barbecue but even the other iconic dishes like gumbo etouffee jambalaya, all, all dishes that, that start with ingredients that are born out of poverty and necessity. I mean, like things like brisket, you know, in Texas, a lot of brisket goes into landfill. Chicken wings were always something that was, they were minced up for pet mints. Pork butts and pork shoulders, it's, that's the cut that butchers in this country would make sausages from, you know. So yeah, a, a lot of the ingredients are the starting point, cheaper cuts, and you've got to pour your heart and soul into them to make them taste incredible. But you know, I think that's that's where the, where you can taste the love. Totally. And what are your top
1: recommendations for people wanting to think about having a go at maybe some recipes from your book, the style of cooking during lockdown? What are well, some suggestions? When
4: it, when it comes to outdoor cooking, you know, there's there's kind of two ways you can you can smoke meat uh, for a really low a long time at a low temperature, or you can grill meat at a higher temperature, and it doesn't take as long. So a lot of people have been sending us pictures of of things like the Mai Tai chicken thighs or the pork chops with the salsa verde, or even, you know, chicken wings or a spatchcock chicken. So, something that doesn't take forever, you know, so that's always a good starting point. You probably don't want to start with a six kilo brisket. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> and of course, great time to get to
1: know your local butcher as well. <laughs>
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we're, we've always been big advocates of, you know, shopping local for your, meat, for your meat and your vegetables and whatever else you can get. So I'm really hoping, I mean, I certainly know our butcher has, has never been busier and I'm hoping that post lockdown, you know, when we can visit our supermarkets as frequently as we used to, that we won't forget these
4: high street traders. It's really important. I can remember in the first couple of weeks in lockdown, you know, when we closed the restaurant 21st of March and those those first three weeks were we're literally in this sleepy little seaside town that we live. Nobody left their houses. And what we've managed to do is cultivate a relationship with so many local suppliers. So we now have um, an egg lady who delivers the eggs with her kids on their bikes We have a local milkman that drops pints of milk at the door with butter, cream, cheese. We've got a local veg supplier that drops a veg box off once a week. And of course, the local butcher is is only like, you know, a five minute walk away from here and they deliver as well. So I'm just really hoping that I never, ever have to go into a supermarket again
1: yeah well there's certainly some new habits forming for a lot of people that you know hopefully will be really positive ones for the future I just have to ask you one more thing you mentioned iconic dishes I just have to ask you about an iconic person Dolly now I heard that you delivered food for her when she was playing in Cardiff is that true true
3: story yes true story so I mean that's just incredible Well, listen. She is the unofficial patron saint of hang fire. We even have a little Dolly shrine to her in our house, and so we'll we'll send you a picture if you like. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of beautifully sad in, in lots of ways. Yeah. So Dolly, Dolly is an icon of ours, and both Shauna and I, we've loved her since we were children, and you know she's a real beacon for um, feminism, for gumption. She's an absolute success story in every single way and we really really love her and we actually stayed with her drummer when we lived in Nashville. We lived in a little sleepy town called Fernvale, which is just by Franklin, just outside Nashville. Yeah, so we stayed with her drummer. And in the drummer's house, there's lots of platinum and gold records, you know, from from their touring and from their history together. And yeah, so when she, I mean, she hasn't been back to the UK since we she last toured here. When was that, Shauna? Was that like four years ago? Yeah, so we, she requested our barbecue for her tour bus so well, so she only stays on her tour bus there we go there's an inside tip for you she doesn't oh stay- really yeah. yeah yeah she
4: only stays on her tour bus yeah so it was a special moment we love her well I think that whenever you're on a, a world tour there's nothing like comfort food that makes you feel like you're at home so if you rock up in Wales and two girls bring you brisket and moonshine that's <laughs> it's like a. It's like a big hug and, and all the feedback that we had from the crew was it just it just made them feel really at home
0: oh that's good i wondered if they gave you feedback so they did that's lovely that must be oh, yeah,
4: happy we were in the tour- oh no we were in the tour bus at the end of the night swinging neat whiskey out of bottles with them <laughs>
0: as you do as you do <laughs>
4: incredible
0: so those are things that have happened in the past what are you looking forward to when the pandemic is slightly less ruling our lives what are the three things you guys are looking forward to
4: well the first thing is i'm really looking forward to reopening our restaurant which has been closed since the 21st of march we've managed to furlough 16 employees and that's really important to the regeneration of Barry because they are 16 brand new positions of employment that we created when we went there in 2016. I'm really looking forward to seeing the staff because we have an incredible team of people that are sat at home like coiled springs ready to leap into action as soon as the government gives us the go-aheads to open safely.
3: Yeah, I think uh, hugging, we're missing hugging people. Swanna and I are very tactile people so, you know, even if I have to wear a hazmat suit <laughs> uh,
4: when we open this restaurant, we will be hugging people again. And then the third thing is, of course, the pub. I mean, we absolutely love drinking. <laughs> but and, and you know, it is okay to crack open a bottle of wine at one o'clock in the afternoon when you're doing a podcast with somebody. Not not that we're doing that now, Charlotte. No, no, no. no. <laughs> but, but there's nothing like a crisp, cold pint of lager in a beer garden with your mates. Just chewing over the fat and and reflecting on things. I think when you're locked down at home, you can go very like inside your own head and overthink a lot of things. And and that opportunity to go to the pub and socialise with your friends and have a laugh and blow off steam, that's the thing that I'm probably missing the most.
3: Shauna has a Northern Ireland phrase for this. What's that? Is it, get your head showered? Oh, yes. Yeah, you know that? (laughs) I've, I've made it sound really posh. It goes more like, get your head showered. That's better. (laughs) I've not heard that before. Uh, I think it just means getting yourself realigned, getting yourself back in the zone. Absolutely.
0: And And am I right that you guys were supposed to be getting married last weekend? That
4: must be something you're looking forward to. Yeah, we we actually have never, ever talked about our sexuality or the (laughs) fact that we're a couple, ever. We managed to out ourselves live on national TV to 14 million people. Well, now they know. <laughs> uh, well, there's no going back in the closet No, Sorry. That's quite a way to do it. <laughs> sorry if you didn't know. I've just dropped that <laughs> bombshell on you.
3: But yeah, so last weekend, so the first weekend of June was supposed to be the big party for our friends and family. So we had uh, about 150 people coming to a beautiful farm in uh, in Monmouth to celebrate with us. But our friends have been amazing. They put together... A collective video of amazing things, everything from reenacting Dolly songs to dressing up to pretending like it was happening anyway in their own backyard. So, yeah, it was really special. But y- you know what? I mean, we'll we'll pick it back up again next one year, day. One yeah. day that is definitely
0: something to look forward to. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. You're very very busy. We are super grateful. It's a great time of year to talk about this kind of cooking. Well. To be honest, in my house, this kind of cooking happens all year round, but I guess lots of people will be interested in uh, going outside and making something delicious, so thank you very much.
3: Oh, you're welcome. Welcome. You know, we, we would just urge people to give it a go. It doesn't matter if you're grilling some courgettes or cooking some chicken wings. Just get out there. There's nothing like the taste of barbecue to make you feel comforted.
1: Couldn't agree more. And thank you for your time, and we wish you well with everything that's going on at the moment
4: oh well Thank i
3: you. hope to see you soon thanks for
1: having us Woo! Bye-bye. well that's tempting me to get the matches out and cook something slow and smoky talking of smoking jewels i wrote about it a few years ago i wrote a book called smoked and this is something that you obviously have an interest in as well with your hummus company am i right in thinking that you invented smoked hummus
0: yeah, I like to say that I did. I think I did. Yes. Yeah, so I love smoky food. I've always loved smoky food, whether it's smoked cheese, smoked salmon, smoked meats. I just love the flavor of them, and my family do too. So I did learn to smoke things at home, cold smoke, and I think we've mentioned it on a previous episode, probably episode three, where we talked about smoking fish and you gave us some fantastic tips on that we talked about i have an eco pro q home smoker which is just like a large cardboard box and i smoke all sorts of things in there and we we do a nice smoked salmon at christmas the way we do it for the smoked hummus is obviously on a much larger scale so there is a an artisan smokery that we use in the west country and they smoke our chickpeas it's they're cold smoked over sustainable wood they're naturally cold smoked and then they are packaged up and taken to our hummus factory in London and made into smoked hummus but it's quite a different process smoking on that scale to smoking at home I have visited the smokery a few times and it's just so interesting to see they smoke vegetarian products so they smoke my chickpeas obviously they smoke cheeses olives that kind of thing but it's absolutely huge when you go inside the smokery itself you know you can walk around it it's got room after room and huge big trays and smoking ovens um So interesting to see that you can do these artisan processes on a large scale. But at the end of the day, you get the lovely smoked food out of it at the end. And it's just delicious, something I absolutely love. So you obviously are also an expert on smoked food with your book Smoked. Tell us what are your top tips for smoking food at home?
1: Gosh, well, I mean, I wrote the book, as I have done with my last couple of books, just to really sort of demystify and explore how to get into different ways of cooking and preparing food at home so it was a really interesting experience writing the book I really enjoy smoking my own food and I too absolutely love the flavors of wood and smokiness with food I'm a big fan of hot smoking somehow I particularly enjoy the sort of richness that you get from hot smoked ingredients. But obviously that really only works with meat and fish for some vegetables, uh, pulses, cheeses, dairy, you know, cold smoking is, is the best way to uh, prepare the ingredient. I've got some simple equipment at home. I actually tend to use, I have the big green egg. I have the large and I have the mini max and the mini max is great because it's quite small we've got it up here in Wiltshire at the moment and I like to put that in the back of the car and actually it's really it's really transportable I mean it's quite heavy but it goes in the back of the car really really easily and I will take it out on the beach and I will cook things I will take it fresco. I mean you can't it is heavy you can't carry it too far from the car <laughs> but it is so nice you know fresh fish fresh spider crabs. It's just gorgeous. Even just sausages on the beach. It's amazing. And I use the big one at home, which is quite useful because it's got a really large grill so I can do bigger things like a side of salmon. And this is actually the Camado style of grilling that that, uh, Genevieve talked about in her interview. And that works really well, hot smoking for me. We did build a A homemade cold smoker when I wrote the book out of a garden bin a metal bin and an incinerator which was really fun and that works fantastically well that was a great project but I do have an engineer at home so that was quite helpful but we did write instructions how to do it in the book but a little um stovetop Smoker works very well either for hot or cold. The Pro Q you mentioned is really good. I use Cameron's hot smoker as well, which is fantastic. And there's some really, really useful pieces of kit. And I think one thing that I quite like is having something like the Camado is really interesting because it is a dual-purpose piece of kit. You can grill on it, you can do your barbecues and you can smoke. And I think unless you've got endless space, it is quite useful to have pieces of kit that will do lots of different jobs in the kitchen. So, who does your barbecuing at home, Charlotte? Is it you, or is it your partner? Or a it's me. It's me. So I sometimes have a little bit of, of help. It tends to be when we're on holiday. Actually, we've had, but I probably shouldn't say, it, but we've had lots of sort of rather crispy, overdone prawns and asparagus <laughs> things. I've left someone else in charge of it. He will admit that. But no, it's me. It's me. But then I do all of the cooking in our house. So out of choice, I should add. Yes. So do you get involved? You said your husband is keen. Is he... So I'm
0: not really allowed to get involved. I do do the occasional one. So if he goes out on a bike ride, I am allowed to light the, the coals and what have you. And I will make all the sides. That's kind of my thing. But I do a lot of the cooking and all the shopping and all the meal planning. So for my husband to have some agency to be the barbecue guy, then that's absolutely fine by me. So I will make, I love making the sides, I make focaccia, I make baba ghanoush. I make, well, I love to just whip up a salad or maybe some of my flatbreads. I love to do sort of smoky pepper dips, things like that. All sorts of um, delicious things that go with the lovely stuff that he barbecues. I like to make a potato salad. Obviously, I am a good Irish girl. I like my potatoes. And I have perfected my potato salad recipe, which I'm really delighted when it's barbecue time. I always go out and get a bunch of new potatoes and whip that up. So, yes, I'm kind of the sides girl. And he gets to do the main show. I have to say, I think I do more work. In making the sides, and his bit is the easier, quicker bit, but we won't broadcast that. Don't tell (laughs) (laughs) anyone.
1: So, what sort of stuff do you cook on your
0: barbecue? So, it depends on the time of year and what we fancy. So, he loves to do beef brisket. Nice. Uh huh. Or a pork shoulder. We've also been doing things like marinated chicken kebabs. We had a delivery from Piper's Farm this week, so we're definitely going to make some chicken kebabs out of the lovely chicken thighs that we've got. He will do stuffed peppers stuffed with cream cheese and things like that. He did scotch eggs on the barbecue. Wow. uh, Yeah, he really is very keen and very experimental. He did a course with Marcus Borden. I don't know if you know him. Mm, Um, I do. Yes, so he did a barbecue course. At Marcus Borden's place a year or two ago and came back very inspired and we've had all sorts of things. My husband actually found some Dublin Bay prawns last week and they've been in the freezer waiting for the sun to come back and we've we've been fantasizing about putting those on the barbecue and having some lovely garlic butter and some breads and salads and things Uh, but I think we'll save it for a really beautiful sunny day.
1: Oh, funny you mention that because I have some too, and I had them sent down. I've got this brilliant supplier, Skipper's Choice in Scotland, and I've got some. I've got some waiting, and I was thinking maybe this Friday. I feel like we need a bit of cheering up. <laughs> it's been a hell of a weekend, uh, but it's not looking like the weather's going to be good enough. But they are just probably one of my ultimate treats, and of course, save save the shells as well and the claws, and they make an amazing soup, stock, beef are just so delicious. We tend to go for quite quick stuff to be honest because we tend not to have, we're just busy generally and we don't tend to have sort of like long afternoons at home. We tend to sort of like dash back from a day out and think oh let's fire up the barbecue. So I quite like it. I like to do sort of slower stuff when I'm when I'm at home and you can either just sit in the garden, have a glass of wine or just, you know, have a pot around and keep poking at it every, every once in a while. But that doesn't tend to be the way we sort of live our lives at the moment. So I tend to do quicker stuff. But one of my favorites is a spatchcock chicken. So I'll get a whole chicken, cut out the backbone, you can marinate it, sometimes I'll just put it in a bit of olive oil, garlic, fresh herbs from the garden, and it's so good. And then of course you can put the lid down and smoke it, so you get the most delicious sort of uh, hot smoked chicken, it's just so good. Or sometimes a couple of basil leaves underneath the skin, and then brush the skin with a bit of olive oil, sea salt absolutely divine it's really really good and of course i'm paying more attention to the wood alcohol i buy for smoking as well and i think jen had some really good advice on that but that really affects the flavor as well doesn't it
0: Mm, absolutely and i love the idea of doing the the dublin bay prawns or any seafood and using the shells because it won't just make an ordinary fish stock will it it will be layered with that sort of smoky flavor as well which would be beautiful
1: yeah, so, so good. Really, really, really worth doing.
0: Well, as always, I am now getting really hungry. <laughs> uh, shall we talk about some of the industry news I've had this week? Absolutely. What's come across your desk this week, Jules? So, industry leaders have called on the government to rethink its food strategy as the UK emerges from the COVID-19 crisis which they claim has exposed inherent weaknesses in the system. The proposals claim successive governments have overseen a gradual decline in the UK's self-sufficiency and failed to invest enough in the sector, putting it at a disadvantage against countries with more proactive food strategies. The document urges ministers to look at a recovery from the outbreak as a unique opportunity to remodel the industry, including major investments in domestic farming, processing and food service, which have been badly hit by the impact of the outbreak. And Pret-a-Manger is continuing to nudge the business back towards normal as it gets ready to open its Veggie Pret stores later this week. All 10 veggie pret outlets in London and Manchester will reopen on the 11th of June after being closed throughout the pandemic. Seven of the 10 shops, including the Manchester location, will offer deliveries for the first time as the result of
1: a partnership with Deliveroo. That was really interesting. Thank you, Jules. Now, have we got any questions this week from our lovely listeners?
0: Yes, we have somebody who has told us of a meringue disaster. I'm not sure what sort of disaster they have had, but it might be helpful to hear what tips you got in not having disastrous meringue, Charlotte.
1: Yeah, well, that's really interesting. Lots of people seem to have issues with sort of cooking their meringues for too short a period of time with too hot an oven temperature. And um, that means that there's too much color on the inside and often don't set on the inside. So that's, that's one sort of common issue. As a guide, you really want to be using about 55 grams of caster sugar for every large egg. And what you really need to do is make sure you beat it really well. My advice with meringues is always to sort of overbeat it because you can underbeat it. So this is one of those unusual examples in baking whereby it will not do it any harm whatsoever to keep mixing for a bit longer, even if you think it's done. Personally, when I have not beaten my meringues for enough time, they have been too wet in the inside or they've sort of collapsed on themselves when they've come out of the oven. They'll look good when they're taken out, but the structure hasn't formed within. So I think you need to give them a good 10 minutes of beating to get the mixture really, really stiff. And you will notice it will become more and more shiny and smooth and stiff. And that tends to give you a really good structure. In terms of oven temperature, you probably want to be having your oven back, gas mark one, gas mark two, 100, 120 maximum. People have burnt their meringues if they leave them in at sort of 140. So make sure you keep an eye on the temperature. You probably want to be giving them at least an hour and a quarter and then turn the oven off and leave them overnight to set. Quite a lot of people do recommend a little dash of vinegar or a teaspoon of corn flour as well. And I don't use that personally, but um, a lot of people feel that So that gives that really nice sort of like fudgy, moussey texture in the inside and a crisp outside. And a lot of recipes you'll see that in as well. So they'd be my sort of top tips for success. That's
0: a lot of really good tips. And I think it's hearing from you, to give people the confidence to you know overbeat the meringue, beating them and making sure they're beaten enough that's the kind of thing unless somebody tells you that that's okay that might be something that you'd worry about so it's mm. good to hear it from a professional that that is the thing too. Mm. and we have mm. another question which is quite apt for the weather and that's talking about cold dressings and what oils you would recommend charlotte for cooking and eating cold in dressings
1: mm, well i'm I must say, I'm a big advocate of a good quality oil and using it sparingly. If I'm really honest, I wouldn't recommend any of the sort of major brands of oil you see around the sort of big brand stuff because a lot of the oils tend to be blends and not actually very good quality. The cold oils, personally, I like to use extra virgin olive oil, but then a lot of my cooking is quite sort of Mediterranean style so that's it that's a good fit uh, rapeseed oil is lovely and it's really nice to use a sort of local rapeseed oil some of the flavors i find of rapeseed oils can be quite strong so i find that the flavor is quite distinctive there's one actually what i'm using is um broita gold which is actually from limavadi in uh, northern ireland county Londonderry. but that, that's really good it's got a really sort of like buttery flavor and that's a really really good one but i wouldn't use something like a sunflower oil or a vegetable oil for a dressing at all so i'd save that for cooking but personally i do use extra virgin olive oil a lot in my cooking as well i wouldn't sort of fry in olive oil but i'll always add a dash in the pan if i'm making something mediterranean inspired what i recommend is looking for a single origin extra virgin olive oil i tend to go for spanish or greek because i think I personally really, really like the flavors. Some Italian oils are beautiful, but they can be very strong, very, very peppery, quite overpowering. And those flavors, a lot of the Tuscan oils, for example, the the olive varieties are gorgeous, but they're very strong. And that's not to everyone's taste. They can be really, really intense. So often sort of Spanish or Greek is a good place to start. And check. it's the first pressing if you can you will pay more for that but it means that you get what is sort of you know freshly out of the olive as opposed to the sort of dregs that have been sort of swirled around there's some good places to start there's a really good Italian, Puglian, South Italian extra virgin olive oil they sell in Aldi, for example. It's really good. Bellazoo have a really nice range. The Arbukina variety they sell, which is Spanish olive. So it's really delicious. Colonna, Capizana, really good Italian oils. Manny is a great Greek one. There's some really good ones out there. And if you actually cook a reasonable amount, it's much better to buy in bulk direct from the supplier sort of three liter tins for example if you'll get through that amount of oil much much better value it often works out you know comparable with something on offer in the supermarket but you get a much better quality of oil but the one thing i should say as well is don't keep your oil for more than a year it goes around the city really quickly so for example you're given a really nice bottle of oil someone goes on holiday brings you back a nice bottle it's probably really good stuff just use it. If you do not use it, it will go rancid within a year and it will not be palatable as well. So just, if you got it, enjoy it.
0: As a good uh, motto for a lot of things in life, don't save things for best And I get older. I realise that that is not what we want to do if you've got something good to use use it if you've got something nice to wear wear it sometimes i'm walking around the house in my high heels at the moment just to make sure that i get to use the nice things and that very much applies to food as well well listen charlotte that is brilliant thank you very much and thank us again to all of our fabulous guests and to you lovely listeners we hope you enjoyed the show and we look forward to talking to you again next week So we'd just like to finish by saying thanks for listening, folks. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question about food and drink during the pandemic, drop us an email. We're on hello at pandemic-pantry.co.uk. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram under Pandemic Pantry Podcast. And if you'd like to enter our weekly competition to win a case of delicious Moorish dips or one of our other great giveaways, just head to our website and look in the competition section. The website address once more is www.pandemic-pantry.co.uk and we'll see you next week.